Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Laundry. All right, so we are here today with Anna Roby from athletebloodtest.com. Now, why are we talking about this type of stuff first off? Well, we are all athletes and we all want the best of our body. And Anna, what would you say is the most important aspect that we need to look within besides our psychological aspect? Like, what is it? What's the key to performance? How do we unlock it? Yeah. And that's the, the key is athletes blood test is really interested in how do we get athletes to feel and perform their absolute best. And, you know, as triathletes, we love to sort of geek out on the data, the numbers, we like tracking things. We love the latest tech. We've got our, you know, power meters and all of that, but all of the tech aside, none of that is going to pay off if physiologically you're not doing well. So, you know, you can have the fastest bike, the lightest gear, but if you are deficient in nutrients or if certain biomarkers are gonna be out of an ideal range, then you're not gonna be seeing that optimal performance. You're not gonna be reaching that full potential that you could be if everything was uh, in that ideal range and feeling good from the inside out. Absolutely, and professional athletes, um, like you know, me and Jackson, we're really focused on that type of stuff, but I think a lot of professional athletes also, on the flip side, don't do it maybe like once every few years, they just, they forget that because let's face it. It's one more thing. You usually have to fast overnight, which in my opinion is like, it's like a death sentence. I wake up murdering everything that looks at me in the wrong way. Um, and you have to go sit in this lab and I mean, blood draw doesn't bother me, but it's just one extra thing on top of fatigue and the timing. So I can see why it's kind of something that it's not as accessible as we think it is, but on the flip side of that, I, or the other side of that, I wanted to talk about why you are here talking with us today specifically, because I thought your, your resume of, you know, did you have like all kinds of letters after your, your name? When I saw your signature blog, I was like, man, you have done some studying, you are well-educated. And I, that's why I couldn't wait to get you on. So tell us about why you're working with athletebloodtest.com and why you're passionate triathlete and why you think that you are able to really look into with your microscope and do the best work possible with all the worlds combined. Yeah. So I'm really passionate about sports performance and specifically like nutrition and physiology. I've been an athlete my whole life. I started when I was three and I did my first triathlon when I was 19. Um, and so it's such a fun and unique sport. Um, and I've always really enjoyed science. I'm very, detail oriented. And I think that's part of what drew me to endurance sports is there's so much that goes into it. And, um, you know, with general nutrition and sort of wellness, the basics are pretty simple in terms of like what makes up a relatively healthy diet and the details aren't as essential for the general population. But when you're looking at performance nutrition, the details do matter. You know, 1% differences the difference between first and fifth place in an Ironman. So when I was in school and I started to learn more about nutrition, I started to realize that there really was a science to it. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's, that's awesome. You can make a career out of, out of nutrition and sports. So I, uh, I dove into the research side of things and started 
working in labs in summers um, between high school and college and then the, the summers after that while I was getting my undergrad. And I did a, a double major in exercise physiology and science. Um, again, trying to figure out, you know, how do we get the body to perform its best based on what we're giving it? And so from there, I went and uh, did my doctoral work and started looking at uh, nutrition from the research side. And um, afterwards, I did some research at the National Institutes of Health in Washington, DC. And now I am working with athlete blood tests, uh, as well as seeing clients one-on-one, -on -one, helping them with their nutrition. So it's been a, a lifelong passion of mine and a journey. And it's, it's only getting more and more exciting as we start to get more research and more data collected here. So I'm really Jackson's passionate about it passionate and too. it's fun. Jackson's, this is his, his game. He loves this type of stuff. Yeah. Do you have any specific stuff you want to bring up, Jack? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, um, that's really cool. And that you obviously have a ton of uh, education in, in the topic because it's kind of, like you said, a lot of people, um, you know, if you're a coach, you're kind of focused on the coaching aspect or like somebody might have a, like I have a human kinetics degree with a minor in nutrition. So I have some nutrition background, but not a huge, huge amount. Um, but it's pretty unique to have that background in both physiology and nutrition. So I think that's probably what really makes you the expert on this kind of stuff. But yeah, in terms of like what, um, what you see in like the blood tests and nutrition, like, I'd be interested to, to hear from you about how, um, how effective do you find the changes in nutrition? So like, let's say, somebody does a blood test and first off, what are the most common things, I guess we should go into what are the most common things that could be off in a blood test? I mean, obviously there's a ton, but what are the main things you're looking at and what's kind of the most common things that go wrong? And then like, how do you address those issues nutritionally or like with more rest or what have you? Those steps. Yes. yes. So that's a, that's a big question. There's a lot of components to that. There are a variety of things that we look for. And if you look at how athlete blood test reports are divided up, they're divided into sections. And so when putting together the reports, we've only teased out the biomarkers that are going to have a performance impact and that we can really do things about. This is going to make it a lot more efficient for athletes, but also for us too. Like there's no point in looking at things if they don't, if there's nothing we can do about them. And so we look at the certain biomarkers kind of in groups. So you have a section on training tolerance, hydration, micronutrients, red blood cells, white blood cells, and common things that we see, um, it depends on the athlete, I would say their age and their training volume, but some of the most common things that we'll see in men is certainly low testosterone. And that's usually an effect of, you know, high training volume, um, and under recovery, uh, in women, sometimes we'll see low levels of estrogen or progesterone, um, which can be causes of, um, you know, menstrual cycle irregularities. Um, and then with the, the micronutrients, uh, a lot of times we'll see things that are like low folate, um, B12, um, vitamin D and potassium and magnesium. These are usually fairly low. Um, and then, you know, overall, it's going to depend on, on the athlete's age. We work primarily with endurance athletes, but again, there's a wide, wide range, but, um, I would say mostly it's 
the training tolerance biomarkers seem to be showing that they're, they're starting to get to that overtrained state, whether that's from low testosterone, um, high sex hormone binding globulin, high cortisol, and then um, some lower micronutrient status. And if they're potentially getting fairly overtrained, um, we start to see decreases in white blood cell or red blood cell function. Looking at hemoglobin and hematocrit is really important, checking their iron levels. Um, and so how do you correct for that? That's the million dollar question. We well, let's let's wait before we get to that part. So what, what I wanted to, to mainly get into before we talk about how to correct these things, because I also, we're going to use me as the guinea pig and look at my blood test a bit and talk about some of the stuff that is wrong with me, you know, on the blood, not, not all the other stuff, <laughs> the good stuff. Um, the problem I think is talking to your points of all these levels is we usually don't even know until it's too late. Like we've all, we, we've gotten to the point to where we're totally reactive as athletes where we're like, Oh man, I'm like out of breath going out the stairs or my power has been crap for a week on the bike. And we're like, Oh man, I think I just I'm tired, but we don't actually know why. And we're super bad at making sure that we're taking checkpoints along the way. Like every couple of months, we're just checking our blood or we're, we're not checking our, our blood every couple of months. We're waiting until we're like have stress fracture. And we've been like, autoimmune issues and hormone deficient for a while. So yeah, is that what you normally run into athletes who are like, oh, I've been broken for a while and I'm finally coming to see you? Yes. I would say most of our athletes are symptomatic when they come to see us. I get excited when people test before they're symptomatic, because like you brought up, you don't necessarily know what's going on inside unless you're getting your blood tested. It's not like you wake up and you say, mm, I feel like I'm a little low in, in folate today we have no idea. And so by getting a blood test, we can take a look to see what is going on and then be proactive because a lot of times we're going to have biomarkers that are outside the ideal range for an athlete and they're not going to be symptomatic. Symptoms don't develop until you get pretty far outside the ideal range or you've been outside long enough that it's now starting to be so problematic that your body is starting to show signs and symptoms. So it's definitely beneficial to be proactive and yeah, to test quarterly, um, to make sure that things are, you know, in a good place so that you can be getting the training adaptations that your training plan is intending. So would you also say that, um, you know, these biomarkers are pretty easy to feel before it's too late, or do you just have to know by blood? Like sometimes you could be like, well, your testosterone has been kind of suboptimal as an athlete for like months, but it took you another couple of months of just running yourself into the ground before it really plummeted. And you noticed like, when are you really going to be able to tell beyond getting sick or injured? Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say that you really can't know, um, until you get fairly far outside that you're starting to see the signs and symptoms. Um, just because again, our bodies are pretty sensitive, but we're not going to have noticeable, uh, impacts and how we're feeling until they get to a certain point. Um, some biomarkers are more sensitive than others. So for example, you're probably going to notice changes in your energy and performance with iron faster than let's say B12 maybe. Um, and again, it's going to depend on the person too, and their genetic profile, but, uh, just looking at kind of as a whole, 
Um, you know, I've seen athletes who have come to us and they said, I didn't even think I was feeling, you know, poorly before, but I made the recommendations and I'm feeling so much better. So it's funny. I think a lot of us get used to kind of feeling fatigued or less than ideal and that becomes normal. So we think that that's just our ideal when really we're just used to, to suboptimal. Yeah. We're really equipped at coping as humans and we never know how cloudy it's been until we get those shiny, bright, shiny days. So I always like to tell people, like you, like you said, you're used to being tired and it becomes kind of hard to tell, like, am I tired just because I've trained hard and that's normal or is it something else? And that's something that obviously an athlete's level experience can change um, or can, can help with. Like I know, uh, somebody has been training a long time at a high level, like Nick or I might be able to find, you know, feel like something's a little off and be able to decipher that. But at the same time, maybe not. Whereas a beginner athlete, they might just be like, I have no idea what's going on. And that's a great time to start with blood tests because if you're starting from the beginning, it's also just information you can learn along the way. Like, okay, you know, I got this blood test. This was my testosterone level. It was within the range, but kind of close. And this is how I feel. And this is kind of how much room I have to play with because it does take time to move. But it's, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned testosterone is one of the first ones because when I've had blood tests over the years, I, I get them probably not quite quarterly, but almost average that. I probably do at least three a year. And testosterone is the one that hands down has the biggest impact on how I'm feeling. Um, if I'm feeling great, um, it's well within the normal range and I can almost tell I'm out. I can almost tell it's getting low without even getting a blood test, which is bad, but I've, I've had it before where I feel okay. And then it tests low and I'm like, that's weird. And then like two days later, I just feel terrible. And it's just like that delay, like you said. Um, but yeah. And for me, I find the information useful, even if I'm in the range, how far up into the range am I? Because if I'm getting low, that can determine how my training load should be looking for the next few weeks. Um, Cause if I'm getting low and I have huge training coming up, that might be a recipe for disaster. So that's a really good kind of actionable point for sure. Um, well, well also yeah. low and high, like this is normal people ranges that normal athletes don't and this is why athlete blood tests. And I, I thought it was really unique. And I think this is a great partnership because you have ranges that are standard and then you have athlete ranges. And most people are like, well, yeah. maybe my, my testosterone, my free testosterone is at, you know, w- whatever um, it's above eight, but you want to be above 12 as an athlete or something like that. Like those are the types of things you guys have developed and noticed like, so that's, can you speak a little bit more to that as to maybe some athletes are still coming within the range, but they're maybe not within the athletic range? Absolutely. And so athlete blood test is a very organic company in that sense that it started with a group of pro triathletes training for Ironman. And they were curious how their training was impacting their blood levels. And so our founder, Dr. Rock started collecting data and did this for over 10 years before really refining these athlete ideal ranges versus the standard ranges. So if you go to your doctor or kind of get a general blood test and they, they're going to compare you to the general population who is very sedentary. And so, yeah, you might say that, oh, your iron is perfectly normal. And that might be true. It's normal relative to sedentary people who just need to function in daily life. 
but that's very different than ideal for an athlete training for a 70.3 in Ironman, even, you know, Olympic, whatever distance they're training for. So that's the big, one of the big differences with athlete blood test is our data is derived specifically from athletes. It's not from the general population. And so it's very refined into looking at performance um, and kind of optimal performance with these biomarkers versus, well, what's enough to avoid deficiency or just kind of living your daily life, you know, getting around the house kind of a thing. So that's one of the biggest differences that, that we have is we only work with athletes and we're looking at how do we get your body to perform and feel its best, not just avoiding deficiency, which is more of the, the primary concern with general blood tests is, you know, your doctors um, or healthcare providers, they want to make sure that you're not sick and they're, they're not really so concerned about your PR. <laughs> so that's, uh, I would say the biggest difference is looking at these sort of ideal ranges from a performance perspective, instead of just, uh, you know, staying alive and avoiding deficiencies. Absolutely. And as we know, a lot of these factors are not even also just a, a byproduct of training stress. It's life stress. It's everything else you do. I've got a couple athletes, one athlete in particular who developed rhabdo because police officer, his daughter was going through some stuff and then life happens and he was just overly just tapped out. And then we rested, we did a standard, pretty good taper for an Ironman. And then during the Ironman and afterwards just went into it. Like even when you do rest, you could still be incredibly deficient beforehand and still feel pretty good. But he's the classic example of thought he felt pretty okay until he hit rock bottom. And then now coming out the other end after we've done everything to get him back to normal. He's like, Oh my gosh, how was that functioning? And it's like, well, when you're peace Brown, like that's pretty scary. So I get it. <laughs> um, yeah. So we'll get to my blood test later because I think that's probably a good point to end on, but I think something else you all are doing that's pretty cool. Cause I work with other athletes who are post and premenopausal and essentially just going through their standard cycle. Like, how does that, I mean, not how does it impact everything? Cause we know it, it does pretty drastically, but like what specifically can coaches and athletes know how to train differently during those periods and what their hormones are going to do as a baseline? Like you're not going to be able to hit the hit sessions probably. So what else can they do to not be miserable and still train? Yeah. So we're starting to get more research and more data on how women's unique physiology is affecting their nutrition and their training, or I should say how it should impact nutrition and training. <laughs> and very few coaches know about this. And so it's a, a new area that, you know, I am personally passionate about as a female athlete, but um, also just working with athletes and seeing the difference that it can make is really, really exciting. So women obviously have four different phases of their menstrual cycle, assuming that they're naturally cycling, they're not on any sort of hormonal contraception or they're not uh, menopausal or postmenopausal. So we have kind of four different bodies essentially throughout the month. And we want to be supporting those with specific types of training and nutrition protocols. So the first half of the cycle is really where you want to be focusing on 
the, the higher intensity work because our bodies store carbohydrate very nicely. We're very insulin sensitive, glucose tolerant. So this is great for weightlifting, for HIT, for sprints, um, FTP tests. These are, you know, your high intensity works. Um, around ovulation, which is the halfway point between um, the cycle, that's gonna be when testosterone peaks. And so this is a perfect time to PR. Our strength is gonna be at our highest, generally speaking, right? Cause every woman is different, but we're looking at sort of general trends. Um, ovulation, when that testosterone peaks, that is when, you know, PR potential is at its highest. So that's a great time for um, certain, you know, testing metrics to be analyzed. And then in the second half is when we wanna focus more on sort of lower intensity, longer endurance work because our bodies are not as insulin sensitive. We're not quite as glucose tolerant. We burn more fat, um, especially at rest. Um, our metabolism increases. We sweat more, we lose more salt. So during this time, that lower intensity kind of endurance work is key. And then um, that week before they get their period is beneficial for recovery, just because typically you're not feeling great from an energy standpoint not super motivated and physiologically speaking, it's not going to be the best time to be trying to, to push hard workouts. So working on things like mobility, um, technique, stretching, recovery, uh, you know, some lower intensity work is, is going to be key, um, right before that period. And then afterwards you kind of, you know, do it all over again after they get their period, then you can go back to that higher intensity work. So sort of periodizing training in that function can be really beneficial for have women. You had, have you had any feedback of um, athletes that can, they're missing out on certain training if they're, you know, you're, you're recommending, well, you probably should just go long more endurance right now, but they're like, well, this is kind of when I want to peak physically. Um, do you get a lot of feedback in terms of athletes still wanting to push during those cycles? You know, I've had a few, um, Typically women aren't as motivated during that time. So usually telling them, Hey, we're going to do longer, you know, lower intensity. They're okay with that. But like, yeah, you definitely, <laughs> you definitely have some women who want to, you know, be peaking at that time or they have a competition during that time. And so I want to make it clear that world records have been set in every phase of the menstrual cycle. So I don't okay. want women to feel like they're disadvantaged if their race lands in a certain phase of their cycle, they can still do incredibly well. And that's important for them to know, because from a psychological perspective, if an athlete goes into a race or even a workout feeling like they're disadvantaged, that's a huge, uh, a huge detriment. Absolutely. So, so it's important to, you know, reiterate to them that, Hey, like you can still absolutely crush this, but looking at it from a more macroscopic standpoint, can you train around your cycle so that you feel like you're doing better and making better progress is beneficial. So to answer your question, yes, I have had certain athletes and some women aren't as affected by their cycle um, compared to other women. So some women are relatively um, more stable throughout the cycle and they don't notice as big a changes in their performance or how they're feeling. So okay. you definitely wanna take your athlete um, individually if they're feeling fantastic and they want to, you know, push it and do a, a high intensity workout, then I would say go for it. Um, last kind of question before Jack, you can say something about it too, if you have anything. Um, what about women who are on 
oral contraceptives or any other other types of preventive measures for pregnancy? Like how does that kind of add in there or subtract from an experience? Yeah, so that, uh, that changes things. So if you're taking a hormonal contraception, whether that's birth control pill is the most common form, but there's a lot of them. There's patches and pills and shots. Mm -hmm. um, so if they're using anything like that, then they're not going to be getting that natural ebb and flow of the hormones that would be causing these physiological changes. So they're going to be much more stable or steady um, or consistent through the month. So if they are on, let's say birth control pills, they, they might still see some changes, but it's not going to be to the same degree that a woman who's naturally cycling. So you could still modify, um, you know, and periodize their training around sort of the blocks that we talked about, but you wouldn't need to, um, at least not to the same degree. So I think that's one of those where you would want to work with your athlete specifically and ask them, you know, how they're feeling and keep close tabs on how their performance is going to see if, you know, if they can train in a different, different way, or if you need to be changing things based on how they're performing as an individual. Yeah, that's extremely interesting. I mean, that's, um, obviously those things are very important, like how you feel, how you're processing carbs, um, your energy levels, all those things you mentioned affect training a lot. So, um, that's super helpful. And I think it's something that most coaches should know, uh, obviously if they're coaching a female athlete, um, one thing I would just like to ask it, it, as part of this. So if someone let's, let's talking about like high performance, like if someone wants to get the best out of their training and the racing, um, is, is it kind of well-known whether it's better to be on a natural cycle versus, on like a birth control pill or is it recommended um, for performance one way or the other, or is it kind of just, you know, whichever you're on is fine. So there's a lot of different components that go into, you know, why a woman would be on a certain form of contraception. But if we're looking at from a pure performance perspective, I would say it's probably most beneficial not to be on a hormonal contraception because that is going to again, artificially, um, modify their natural hormone levels. And so they're not going to see that peak in testosterone. And we, we see from the research that the hormonal birth control pills decrease testosterone by quite a bit. Um, I don't remember the exact percentage, but some studies are showing 50% decrease in testosterone, which as we know is important for recovery and for performance. Um, and so is, uh, you know, estrogen and and progesterone too, and for different reasons. So I would say, you know, if you have an athlete who's like, Hey, you know, lifestyle aside, I just want to look at performance. It would probably be most beneficial not to be on hormonal contraception. Interesting. Okay. I mean, that's the best, best advice I've heard in, in a while. And the only other person I know who is really as much of an advocate as it was the things you're talking about. And I know, you know, are Stacey Sims. Um, or is it Dr. Stacey Sims? Is she a doctor? I don't yeah. I, I should have. Yeah, she has her that. PhD. Okay. So incredible. Like I have athletes who follow her religiously and it's changed their life. And they've also educated me along the way as a coach. Cause you know, some of us are as a, as a male athlete, we, we clearly wouldn't know unless we're told or unless we're privy to this information. So as a, as a coach, you have to be a little bit more willing to talk about these things with your athletes and you have to be very flexible to change weekly schedules based on 
cycles and and that's kind of why we're here anyway so we need to sharpen our tools and be well aware of these things in terms of female athletes and you know with athlete blood test um you know, even on the website you've got the um you know the she package which is going to work primarily on probably female athletes who want to make sure they're maintaining those hormones in a proper proper way and what's probably just if i'm going to, you know, make a, a guess. It's probably just through managing stress during those periods to just ensure you're not overdoing it when you shouldn't be. And, you know, what, what would you see blood wise if an athlete on a, on the, a female athlete was really the deficit over time and not listening or paying attention and just driving yourself in the wall. And it's probably also due to a couple other factors, but what type of blood would you, or what kind of blood indicator would you really be like, well, you definitely need this as a female athlete versus male athlete. Yeah. So female athletes, uh, our bodies are a lot more sensitive to energy availability than men's. And so our uh, physiology is a little more delicate when it comes to imbalances and hormones and how that affects how we're feeling and our performance. So from the female perspective, we would see decreases in the primary female sex hormones. So progesterone, estrogen, as well as um, FSH and LH. And these are the primary hormones that are going to drive that menstrual cycle, assuming that they're not on some kind of hormonal contraception. And so we, we can see lower uh, sex hormone levels as well as cortisol um, in sex hormone binding globulin, low testosterone, um, and sometimes decreases in red blood cell function as well as immune system. So white blood okay. cell uh, levels. So there, there are quite a few biomarkers that we look at as a whole there. I wouldn't say there's like a single biomarker that it's going to be definitive um, okay. for, for that, but looking at it as a whole, you, we can start to see like there are some red flags. Well, yeah, because cause effect, if, if a couple things are off, uh, probably four or five other things are going to be suffering or trying to pick up the slack or in a deficit because of that. So that makes total sense. Um, would you say that when these numbers start to get low um, in male versus female athletes, uh, like female athletes, just in my opinion, seem to be more injury prone during those those times when they are lower for sustained months, times where, you know, we'll see fractures and, you know, bigger muscle or uh, not muscles, but big old, bigger bones, you know, the, the femur stuff, something like that. Absolutely. And estrogen is uh, a very important hormone for maintaining bone integrity. And so if you have an athlete who has low estrogen, then their bones become very brittle and very soft. And so they're much more prone to stress fractures or, you know, fractures and breaks. And it doesn't have to be an extreme either. I've heard of athletes who, you know, their bones are so brittle that they can get stress fractures just from like carrying groceries and walking. So it's definitely something you want to be cognizant of and be proactive because with bone density, it's a one-way street. So you can only build bone density up until like your twenties. And then after that point, it can only decrease or maintain. So you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to be protecting your bones, because once you lose that, uh, bone density, then there's no getting it back. Oh man, that's so important. Um, especially Jack at a very young age, right. Then we see it with athletes who under fuel at a young age. And, and sometimes it's just due to, you know, not having the expertise or not having a coach who knows. And, um, uh, like you mentioned, you can't build bones really much at all past your twenties. And especially before 18 is really when you're really growing that bone density. And, um, just to touch on what Nick mentioned as well, 
where the stress fractures can come in if you're low in some of the sex hormones. The other, the other factor that is, is really important for females to know is that they're starting with a lower bone density. So they don't have as much room to, to wiggle room. You know, it, it's not good if you're starting to creep down, like you said. Um, so, um, what are some of the signs that you might see in an athlete if they don't have a blood test coming in, but if someone comes in and they're like, oh, if something's way off and you hear, you hear about female athletes who've even lost their menstrual cycle or lost their period. Um, and is that, you know, is that, that's gotta be a good indicator. What do you recommend? Like, what do you recommend to help with that? And what's the most common cause for that? Yeah. So the, it's interesting. So the menstrual cycle is now known as the fifth vital sign for women. And that is so important for maintaining health. So if there are menstrual cycle irregularities, or if it's gone altogether, that's a huge red flag. And that's something that indicates, you know, you want to get blood work or go see your doctor and get that, you know, improved and and regulated again, because you're not going to be performing your best if you don't have your menstrual cycle. And I think for a while it was sort of a badge of honor, like, oh, I'm training so hard. I've lost my cycle. But we want to change that stigma because we now have research showing that it's not. And there's performance detriments much less than, um, you know, health detriments. So you want to make sure that you're getting that back as soon as possible, because that can really wreak havoc on your health, um, your bones, your brain, um, even your heart is really impacted by this low energy availability, which is the primary cause for a missing menstrual cycle. Um, so in order to restore that menstrual cycle, the literature supports the recommendation of 2,500 calories and rest. So no intense exercise, ideally no exercise beyond like walking or yoga, um, to restore that for three months. And then once you've cycled for three months, then slowly increasing training from there. And then you can kind of decrease calories more to an appropriate level based on what their training is. But, um, that's really important to get that, that cycle back aside from a missing menstrual cycle, you'll see more subtle signs that there could be low energy availability. If they feel cold a lot, that's, um, a sign if they have, you know, poor circulation, if their hands and their feet are really cold. Um, if they're not sleeping well, that can be another sign. Um, brittle bone, hair and nails, skin might look a little dull. If they're constantly tired, those are all signs. If they're always hungry, that's another sign that, um, they're likely in low energy availability and you want to get them sort of re-nourished. Well, I know some listeners are probably like, well, there's one, two, three, you've got seven things you just said I have. So I probably need to get that taken yeah. care of. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's, those are amazing points. And that's another main reason I wanted to bring you on because you're so well-versed in this topic, you're passionate and you're, you know, you're going to be part of this movement. That's going to change the world for female athletes, because this is, this is the first time we've, it's been so mainstream and it's being brought to the table. So excellent work. Um, So let's then turn into fixing things that are broken based off blood tests. You know, we've, we, you've seen my blood test. Most things are pretty okay there, but I, in the, in the past had like, I don't know, it was like five, four or five years ago when I started getting into the sport and changing my diet, I experienced like estrogen and progesterone dominance, low testosterone. I was, my thyroid was like, or my TSH was like at 12. I was cortisol numb. So it was just 
so much cortisol, never even, I was desensitized to it. So my body was out of whack and it took, even now I still have to, to work on that to bring it back to normal levels. So that's been my little bit of a struggle. So every time I get a blood test, it's so I can make sure my thyroid and my hormone regulation is not taking a dive again. Cause that I was training 30 hours a week, putting on weight and <laughs> it was really frustrating. Um, so eventually you can fix it, but that's why I'm passionate about blood tests because I had to have those almost every six to eight weeks during those periods to make sure that we were making micro incremental changes over those periods to not have large swings that were going to push the other direction. So, and everything, by the way, non-pharmaceutical, um, you know, I made sure it was completely off the, any list of concern as a pro athlete. So that was also super important. So you can do this stuff, you can get yourself healthy and you don't have to take pharmaceuticals. So that's awesome. Um, so you can bring in some of my blood test numbers if you want and talk about it. I don't really care, but you can also talk about some things that athletes should probably supplement more often than not, than not versus the things that are more wasted money or things that you're not using enough of like, cause you know, everyone's thinking that multivitamin is going to save their life one day, but you never know if it's there until, until like months later, you stop taking it and you like break a bone or something. So what are your yeah. thoughts on all that? Well, I think you're a perfect example of how an athlete can kind of refine their, you know, their diet and their supplement regimen over time to get into those ideal ranges. So typically when I see an athlete test for the first time, there are a lot of things out of range. And again, we don't know what we don't know. And so, you know, if I think, Hey, my diet's pretty good. And I get a blood test and I've got 15 things out of range. It's yeah. like, all right, there are a lot of things that I can work on. <laughs> but then if you take a, I would say a well-seasoned athlete or someone who's been testing regularly, they they've changed, you know, things over time based on the recommendations. And so now it's a matter of just modifying one or two things slightly to stay within that ideal range. So your blood tests looked beautiful. I see very few blood tests with <laughs> such great numbers. Um, so I was really impressed, especially with you know, how high your training volume is at, at this time. Um, and so, you know, usually it's a little overwhelming with that first blood test. If they think, oh my gosh, I have all of this, you know, out of range, but by just making some simple changes, it can make a big difference in terms of changing biomarkers and at athlete blood tests, we really have a food first philosophy. So trying to get all of the nutrients possible through food, and through, you know, real food versus just that. taking, taking supplements. And what's nice is the, the nutrients and foods tend to cluster together. So for example, if you're a little low in folate and we recommend you increase your, you know, folate rich foods, well, that's also going to be a good source of potassium and magnesium and, you know, these other micronutrients as well. So it's not that you have to make drastic changes, but by making some small tweaks, you can see some big, big effects in, in your biomarkers and how you're feeling and performing. So mm -hmm. yeah, we, we recommend foods and we give very specific recommendations for you know, what foods would be good sources for whatever it is that you might be low in. Um, and then obviously there are some uh, situations where supplements are necessary depending on how low a person's um, in a certain biomarker or a certain nutrient. And so with that, you know, we'll give specific recommendations about dosage and how long to be taking something. And um, 
so that's something that's, you know, important because I think a lot of athletes, they think, oh, I should be taking XYZ supplement and they'll just take the same thing forever instead of taking it for a specific dose for a certain time. And they'll just sort of live on the supplement and that's not what they're intended for. So, yeah. Well, real quick, Jackson, think of a couple supplements you want to ask the the efficacy of. I want to know if, because remember, I remember when I got into this sport and I was reading Maka's book and he was like, you got to take CoQ10. It's the best thing ever. And now you can put it, you can get like CoQ10 added to your shakes. You can put it in your Coca-Cola. I think they put it in there as a byproduct. I don't know. You can just get CoQ10 anywhere. Is that something we should be concerned about? I don't usually recommend CoQ10 to my athletes. Um, There doesn't seem to be a lot of research supporting it based on on performance improvements. Um, And so with supplements, I have sort of a minimalistic approach in the sense that only take them if you really need them and there's a purpose behind it. And most supplements are a total waste of money. You can probably count on one hand, the number of effective and legal supplements that do what they say they will. And so I think a a lot of people are wasting money when it comes to unnecessary supplements and, you know, they might think that it's necessary. So for example, they might be taking a B complex because they think they're low in B vitamins. But again, unless we have blood work to look at your B vitamin levels or vitamin D or whatever it is that you're supplementing with, it might be totally unnecessary and you could be just you know, wasting your money. So, um, I think it's important to look at what your blood is saying in terms of what you might need and what might be beneficial. Okay. So yeah, the bottom line blood test is going to be the one to go to first, but we've all got tons of supplements laying around that we're like, I need to start taking this all the time because it's just, I think I should. Do you have any on your mind, Jack? Yes, I do. And um, this one, I think is, I think you're going to say it's pretty important, but vitamin D in the winter, if you live North, um, so I live in Canada, don't get probably almost any sunlight in the winter. Um, and I take vitamin D from like probably October to March or April. Um, and then I'd stop taking it in the summer because I go out with shorts and a t-shirt and get lots of vitamin D. What do you think about that? And, you know, is it something that is just a good assumption that you're going to not have enough in your diet? Or do you think a normal diet could have enough without any sunlight exposure at all? I, that's a good question. I would recommend supplementing with D, especially in the winter months. It's really interesting. Um, so we have athletes all over the country um, that test through athlete blood tests. And you would think that the Southern athletes would have higher levels of vitamin D because they're outside more, they're training outdoors, but we don't see that the warmer climate athletes have any better vitamin D levels than the Northern athletes do. And so I don't know why that is. Maybe they're using sunscreen, you know, I'm not sure, but to answer your question, yes, definitely supplementing in the winter, um, to, you know, keep your vitamin D levels up and potentially in the summer too depending on how much actual sun exposure you're getting and how much you're training, what your genetic predisposition is like in terms of your vitamin D levels, those are all going to play a role, but definitely during the winter months, I don't remember the exact latitude, but above a certain point in the United States, um, 
I think it's like north of Kansas or something. Um, basically, the UV rays aren't strong enough because of the angle of the sun, um, mm -hmm. October through April. So it doesn't matter if it was 80 degrees in December and you were outside, the angle of the sun wouldn't be steep enough to be stimulating that UV um, production of vitamin D. So regardless of how unseasonably warm it might be outside, definitely the D during the winter. And in terms of diet, there aren't a lot of great sources of vitamin D outside of dairy is going to be a really good source as well as um, salmon or any sort of salmon. canned fish with bones in it, which usually isn't high on people's <laughs> favorite foods list. Yeah. So um, keto people love that stuff. What are we <laughs> I've heard liver has like everything, but nobody eats it because it's so gross. It's true. Liver is like the best multivitamin as a food. It's really high in a lot of nutrients. So if you like liver, um, I wouldn't recommend eating more than uh, a quarter pound a week. I think it's 113 grams just because of the vitamin A content. It can be um, close to that toxicity level. Um, so, but yeah, if you like liver, go for it. That will do you wonders. Or if you don't like it, you just really want to be healthy and you can choke it down. Yeah, oh, you're hardcore. Then you're a baller. Um, so with vitamin D, I've once heard that you should also take it with fat since it's not as bioavailable if you don't have it with fat soluble, since it's a what? It's a fat soluble vitamin, isn't it? Yes, that is correct. So vitamin D is fat soluble, which means it needs to have a fat in order to be absorbed. Um, you'll also see some vitamin D supplements paired with K2. So vitamin K is important for bone health along with vitamin D. So sometimes you'll see it paired with K2 as well. But yeah, um, if you take vitamin D, I would recommend taking it in the morning because taking it later in the day or in the evening can mess with your sleep. Because if you think about it, um, our ancestors only got vitamin D mostly from the sun. And so if our body is getting vitamin D, it thinks, ah, well, it must be daylight, there's sunshine. And so it can throw off your circadian rhythm slightly. So okay. taking it with a big meal, so breakfast is a great option because then, you know, you get it in the morning and you're getting some some fat and other nutrients with it. Okay, that's great um, information. I never even heard of that. So that's interesting. I, I usually take it around lunchtime, but that's just probably okay. But anything yeah, that can help with sleep is obviously going to be helpful for recovery. So it's a good tip. Um, as far as, oh shoot, what was I going to even ask about now? I was looking at my whole list of, uh, yeah, let's go yeah. numbers and see what he's got and what ones are out of the range. And is it a big deal? Is, is he going to keel over dead tomorrow? Yeah. Anything I can supplement with, let me know. Cause we got tons of them or get more from your diet, Nick. Are you, are you I, I already, I eat a whole foods diet cause I shop at whole foods and it's expensive. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We don't have a whole foods here. Uh, I think you are slightly low in folate and vitamin D. So <laughs> folate is going to be those green leafy vegetables, uh, nuts, beans, seeds, citrus, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, those types of things are going to be good sources of folate. And then vitamin D supplements, a uh, pretty good, good idea. But again, looking at um, sort of the fatty fish, salmon, Mushrooms are actually the only plant source of vitamin D. So there's your fun fact. Um, and then and also allowable. And one thing I was wondering about with vitamin D is I know that certain types of fish oils, like cod liver oil, sometimes 
um, they put vitamin D in that or it has it. Do What do you recommend? Like is fish oil omega-3 a good one? Like I know there's some research that has showed that's good, but also maybe it's better just to get it from the diet, like you said. Yeah. So ideally you would get it from eating fatty fish because whenever you eat a whole food or a real food, you're going to be getting clusters of nutrients and other things we call bioactive compounds. And there are a lot of compounds in foods that scientists haven't even really discovered yet. And so you're going to get benefits by eating the real food versus an isolated form in a supplement. So if you can eat fatty fish, you know, two to three times a week, that would be great. You're going to absorb more of the nutrients than taking a supplement. But if you don't like fatty fish, or you're not eating it on a regular basis, then yes, taking um, an omega-3 fatty acid would be helpful, especially for athletes. It's going to help calm the inflammation a little bit and um, support that recovery as well as just general health. Okay. Um, real quick, you don't have to dive into it too much, but when is the best time to take iron and what foods mess with iron absorption the most? Because that's a big issue, I think, that nobody knows about. Iron is very tricky. Um, yes. So iron can mess with your stomach a little bit. So a lot of athletes prefer to take it on an empty stomach before bed. Now, a few things that can mess with iron absorption primarily are calcium. Um, so dairy can be uh, troublesome if you're taking it with an iron supplement or an iron rich meal, um, as well as um, Things Caffeine. like phytates or oxygen be in beans, uh, raw spinach, beets, things like that. Um, so taking an iron supplement away from a meal is going to increase the absorption of it as well as taking it with a vitamin C. So taking it with like a squirt of fruit juice, um, lemon juice, some vitamin C or excuse me, some iron supplements have vitamin C added to it. Um, and so if you take it, you know, I would say at least two hours away from, uh, coffee, eggs, dairy, that would be best. So a lot of foods. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And yeah. And iron is one of the most common, uh, deficiencies, or I should just say suboptimal nutrients that we see in endurance athletes, just because we're using so much of it. So should I just set an alarm at 3am and just take it then and then go back to sleep? <laughs> You could, when you get up, if you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, just pop your iron supplement. Okay. There you go. Um, but there are some like slow release forms that you can take before bed. So that way, if you are potentially going to get some sort of like stomach upset, you know, you're sleeping. So you don't, you don't notice it. And obviously you're not eating at night. So um, you just have to wake up at 3am and run to the toilet then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've taken um, iron and I've never... I haven't noticed big, big issues with stomach, uh, issues, like nothing that's going to change, you know, sleep or training or anything, but, um, maybe it's just person to person, of course, but yeah, getting the absorption. Like I've had times where I've never, I've never had really low iron or ferritin. Like the lowest I've seen it is like just under 60 or something. And I've tried to like, make sure I get it up a little bit, but I've found it really hard to get any kind of response from supplementing. And I found a little bit better uh, results just from getting a little bit more from a diet like red meat or um, I know like clams and oysters and mussels have a lot. Yep. Uh, so some of that. And I found that that work has worked better for me. 
Yeah, that's a really, a really good point. And that's what we've seen in the research too, is that, you know, food is just much more uh, bioavailable, meaning we can just absorb it a lot better than a supplement form. So yeah, I think a lot of people think of red meat when they think of iron, but um, you mentioned clams, oysters, mussels, those are all fantastic sources of iron. And I think clams even have more iron than red meat does. So if people, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if people are averse to eating red meat, then go for the seafood options. You're going to see a lot of benefits. And there are a lot of other micronutrients in seafood. They're rich in, you know, B vitamins and zinc and other copper, other nutrients too, that are going to be beneficial. I got to just say that that's a tough that's a tough prescription for fixing some iron because I'm not necessarily going down to the store like, oh, I'll take a pound of oysters a week or I'll get a bunch of sh- clams. Give me those clams, the frozen clams from New England. Or <laughs> I get, get, the, a- get the canned ones. Then you can just throw it in like some soup or like a spaghetti Ooh. sauce or something. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds like I'll be eating, eating a booger. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you some recipes. Bookers are rich in nutrients though, so. No, Nature's not, even a, not even a chuckle. <laughs> Nick, Nick would know. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. So anything else? Um, I know we're running a little long here, so I just wanted to mainly cover some of this stuff that we've already kind of been killing. Um, I think my personal, Jackson, I want to hear yours too. The, the, the most important supplement to me that I can take and see a big difference since I think we're depleting it all the time is just a really healthy source of amino acids. Like the essential ones, just, I take a perfect amino supplement from body health, sometimes two servings in the morning, two in the evening. And I've noticed just, just a stronger body and mind. Like, I don't know, this could be hocus pocus, but for me, that was the one supplement that I absolutely felt like made a big deal for me. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, it goes along with the recovery where it's, um, it's just tough at our levels for sure. When you're training, if, especially if you have a big day, it's hard to get that really good source of protein frequently throughout the day for recovery. And if that, and that's why I feel like I agree, Nick and the perfect amino just helps to fill that gap where, yeah, if you do a really hard swim and you're doing a hard bike in an hour, you're probably not going home and having a steak. Absolutely. Uh, just you, you can't handle it on the stomach. And if you can get that little bit of recovery in between that helps a lot, but yeah, I mean, when you think about what that is, it's, it's really more of a macronutrient. It's not really, uh, it's essentially a more simple form of protein. So that's, uh, probably why that feels so good. And for me as well, because your body just knows it's getting what it needs for recovery. Um, but yeah, I mean, like she said, vitamin D, is kind of the only one, one of the only ones I take. And if you can get it from foods, that's the key. And that's one thing that I definitely can work on, especially on those harder training days when all I want is calories and I'm not thinking about having a salad. Um, that's where I can, I'm off. Well, Nick's Crazy the salad. <laughs> I'm glad he hasn't thrown me under the bus with some of the things I eat, but I mean, no, I'm not, I'm not here to do that. Cat, Kit Kat minis right here. That I've been snacking on. But. I always say, if you're going to race like a rocket, you need rocket fuel. And sometimes that's just like garbage sugar for the moment. And then you just on the back half of the evening, after all the training's done, you just backload with all the healthy veggie greens and home cooked meal stuff you can get. Um, so that's kind of how I've been playing my cards. Cause I can't, I can't do anything after I eat protein. Like if I have a, 
even a chicken salad or something for lunch. And then I have to go do a bike run later in the day. I'll be, you know, burping up some chicken, something. I just don't, I would rather have like just eggs and veggies and maybe some carbs throughout the day and then replenish with more heavier meats in the evening. So that's kind of how I do it with food. And then the supplements, just the aminos to catch up throughout the day. But are we, are we screwed? No. And <laughs> I think, uh, I think you've done pretty well for yourself there. So. Oh, okay. Well, she didn't, she didn't say anything bad. So that's okay. <laughs> she, I think you bit your tongue a little. <laughs> <laughs> There must be a delay in the uh, the, the feed here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we're gonna have um, Eric put in the um, show notes how to to get to the athlete blood test website, how to how to how it works because obviously, you know, it, you have to go get a blood draw and then you kind of yeah yeah. Let this. me speak to that real fast because I just did that as a client. Yeah, it was really really easy. You you go onto the website athletebloodtest.com. You figure out what type of blood test you're willing to. to invest in because it's not cheap. No, no blood test is cheap. And the stuff you get from your doctor you might get one a year, which you can still have analyzed by, you know, anybody who's at athlete blood tests regularly. So that's good. So is that, is that, am I correct in saying you would look at another source of a blood test if we brought it to you, if it was paid for by insurance or something? Yeah, we've worked with, yeah, we've looked at uh, other people's blood tests. It's a little bit tricky because different Doctors are going to run different tests, but yeah, we're always happy to work with uh, people with what they have. Okay, perfect. So yeah, you can do that, but I would, you know, obviously recommend, I think I went with the gold package and I'm looking at two types of analysis. The quick analysis is, which is like, okay, where's all the red and yellow. I'm just going to pay attention to those. And then there's a very thorough with recommendations and probable causations as to what's going on. Um, and then a consultation with with you or maybe one of your colleagues, or are you the only one I would be speaking with, Anna? No, uh, one of my other colleagues does uh, consultations and works with athletes as well. And we kind of, and sometimes we'll tag team, we'll go through it together. Today, we worked with a, a pro athlete training for the Olympic trials here, went through that's her a, blood work. So wow, that's so cool. Okay. So yeah, that's it. And then, so I, I purchased it. I got the the email, the form, I printed the form off. I took it to LabCorp with an appointment. I showed up and it was done within five minutes. I just didn't even have to fast long. I woke up, I got my first appointment at 7 a.m. I was right there at the door. So um, it's really easy. It doesn't really have to put a wrench in your your day. And, and in my opinion, like I, I can't wait to get the results. I'm like, what have I been doing right? What have I been doing right? And I think the only thing I've been doing differently and I think what's made a big difference is that I mean, I just daily hyperbaric chamber for 90 minutes. It's like, I've never seen my blood test come back this good after the kind of, kind of four month training block I just did. So it has to help along. It was impressive. Meeting. Well, well, thank you. I mean, that's, I'm just blushing over here. <laughs> you got to do a whole episode on hyperbaric chamber because we, uh, we kind of skimmed over it in the last one, but it's, it's kind of weird. You basically just have a high pressure environment. It just forces oxygen into your body like more. So yeah um that is exactly what it does but anyways the overall takeaways from my experience with working with you all athlete blood test is i'm going to recommend it to the athletes that i coach obviously because i've always been trying to kick them in the butt anyways to do it since it's been so valuable for me and um i think we're going to have a small i'm going to 
throw you on the spot and just I'm gonna, oh yeah so i'm gonna just throw you on the spot and negotiate it and say that we're gonna probably have a small discount code in the show notes for this episode for athletes who want to do it and if not um i'll, I'll pay the five percent extra <laughs> no no we'll get we'll get your uh we'll get you guys a, a discount code here so that your community can benefit from it too awesome um so yeah jack any final thoughts no, thanks so much for coming on. That was really fantastic to hear that information. And yeah, this is important stuff. And <clears throat> any any information that athletes can get about what their their blood levels are is good. So I agree with Nick. I, I would recommend it to any anybody who's training um, at a relatively, even if you're not super fast, if you're just training quite a bit, it's the same effect on your body. So uh, I think it's important. Absolutely. Any final thoughts, Anna? Any little gems and the nuggets you want to give anybody? No, I mean, I think you brought up a great point here, Jackson, that, you know, some people think that, well, I'm not a pro, I don't need to be doing this, but anytime you're moving your body on a consistent basis, so AKA you're training several times a week, your body's going to be changing. And so you want to make sure that you're supporting that with, you know, your training and as well as your nutrition and recovery. So it's really helpful for athletes of different stages, not just the pros. Perfect. I agree. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you're just i can't we could have talked probably another hour i just think you've got so much knowledge to just shed on us i can't wait um so anyways we'll have you back on again looking forward to go for round two of my results when i am extremely ruined after ironman tulsa if that happens i'll go get a blood test and we'll see how that looks yeah thanks so much for having me on all right we'll talk to you soon and look for that coupon code in the show notes awesome all right, so we have a real triathlon squad member who deals with the same type of stuff we were dealing or we were actually diving into on the podcast with Anna, um, specifically talking about training with the menstrual cycle and how it affects you. Leslie Smith, thank you for coming on to talk about this, this very, very important topic. As you know, the mainstream chatter is figuring out i mean finally it's taking this long right but like coaches need to pay a better attention to athletes um or female athletes when they're going through their menstrual cycle and as anna said you've got different bodies to deal with so can you expand on maybe some of the things she talked about like how do you feel how do you how do you mentally overcome these things that you're dealing with and you know dive as deep as you want into your personal experiences because our listeners will love to hear it Okay. Yeah, great. I mean, I can unfortunately talk uh, pretty in depth with this based on my experience and some just research that I've done when I have noticed, you know, over the years that it, that it really does affect me. What I will say is as far as getting over it and the mental changes that women go through who are, who are going through a cycle each month, I really find that addressing the physical limitations helps with the mental state. It's like, cause for me, it's a very mind body thing. And I'm pretty familiar now with different times of the month. And we're going to say month cause it's approximately four weeks plus or minus a few days for most people for me. Um, but for me, it's pretty much like clockwork. And what I can tell you is that when I am, you know, during the week before day one of the cycle, which is when female starts her period day one is when I struggle the most. And what I find is that I just have a lot more general fatigue, like almost a little bit of malaise. I feel a few, especially a few days in there. 
and I find that my appetite is higher. I require more carbs to get through training um, and just to get through life, to get through sitting on the couch at night. And I think that if I just kind of eat to appetite, no matter what time of the month it is, I have found that that really helps me. Um, I've also found that, you know, I think recovery is extra important during a rough time in this realm and just kind of trying to limit alcohol, which you know, I should be doing anyways, but extra. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have noticed that has helped. And I've actually read some things on that, 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 that can definitely kind of throw the balance off even more. How do you structure uh, your I training have, differently though? So as far as training, I notice I'm not as strong in the weight room, which it's, I need to do more of that anyways, but I find that just in general, I mean, and, and just with swim, bike, run as well, I'm just not quite as snappy. I'm a bit more lethargic. I just kind of feel just a little bit subdued in general, if that makes sense. And I think during, I think it's really important for female athletes to track these things because if you, there are a lot of apps for it, you can enter in notes on how you feel. And once you start coming up with a pattern, you kind of know the times when you should really hit it hard and when you should be a little easier on yourself. Okay. And the more I do that, I find my body responds better. And I will tell you also that when I have been in a bad part of my cycle race or when, or during a race, actually this, this was Miami. This happened to me. It was about the worst timing possible. Um, you know, not to use it as an excuse or anything, but I did find that if I stay, you know, limit alcohol, take magnesium, take omega-3s. And again, this is just some stuff that I've read, you know, stay hydrated, get good sleep, maybe take a little extra melatonin or something. Um, it really does make a difference if you take care of yourself a little bit more. Well, because in theory, your body's already going through a, a certain level of stress given that cycle. So what you want to do is just relax a bit, not put so much pressure on yourself and make sure that you're I guess you're probably losing a lot more than you normally would just by sitting still and you're yes. burning more calories and you're probably, and your body's fighting to get back to homeostasis. So, yes. um, so that makes sense. Like falls in line. So those are the types of supplements that have worked for you personally, or, or have you tried anything different that didn't work? I'm trying to think, you know, I find that there's not necessarily anything I've done that hasn't worked. It's more, what doesn't work is when I omit doing certain things, if that makes sense. Like if I'm not careful with recovery, hydration, I mean, and, and I will tell you there's about one week of the month, maybe a little more where I'm on fire and I can do no wrong and I require nothing. Okay. And so I have noticed the older that I've gotten, the bigger of a discrepancy there is between like the world. Um, and, and I will say too, that I find, I, I have noticed a pattern over time where any time that I felt a little rundown and not, and not quite sick, but almost that little rundown feeling you get before getting sick is when I've pushed it too much during a high hormone week. Okay. Um, and like, and you take that same pushing myself in that same protocol and you put it in a low hormone week or a, a good time of the month and it doesn't even phase me. And I have, again, like I said, I've noticed this has been, you know, it's become more of like, 
on the spectrum has widened on the good versus the bad time of the month, the older that I've gotten. And I, and I don't know if that's something that's normal um, or, or honestly, if I just wasn't noticing it before and I wasn't being conscious of what was going on, say 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, we're younger and dumber, so now you're smarter. <laughs> exactly. I, I do think it has to do with that too. And, and it's just the awareness. And I think as far as the mental implications and mood, and it's just, I have to watch again, it, I can kind of step outside of it these days and see what's going on and just kind of say, okay, your body's kind of trying to do a lot right now. So easy on myself, but also kind of like, you know, watch what I'm thinking and saying because it is being affected by this. And I think it's kind of like, I think a lot of men or, or even women who don't deal with it see as see it as kind of an excuse, but people who are affected by it, it really does affect you. And like I said, you can step outside of it and see what's going on, but that doesn't change, you know, how you feel. Exactly. And that's probably the biggest thing. Like I've, you know, every race I've gone to, like, no matter what my energy levels going in or anything on pre-race day jitters like all that matters is how you feel and how you manage it and you can always overcome that because you know a yep. feeling doesn't dictate the outcome um you know your can-do attitude your ability to compartmentalize and push forward yep. like i think that's been proven time after time so totally. obviously you've been doing well with it um so another question probably you know the last one i'll have for you on this topic too is have you found that as your body weight fluctuates, I mean, I've, you're, you're a lean person, you're an incredibly gifted runner. Um, and has that changed with your, like, have you had periods when you've lost your, your cycle due to being a little bit too light or, and has that affected how you felt, you know, has there been more lethargy or anything? Um, no, I have not. Well, that's so, great. I mean, yeah, it's always been there. I mean, I think maybe in like, high school, but I think this is affected. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think maybe like high school, college years, there were some times where like all of a sudden I started doing a lot more and maybe it was affected a little bit, but these days it really does. My body seems to persevere through no matter what I'm doing. And, you know, and I, like I said, I really try to eat to appetite and just being around running when I was younger and then always being around athletics, I've kind of gotten to the point where I try to not obsessed too much about food. So I, you know, I just try to eat to appetite. I think that there have been times when I've gotten a little too lean when training for, you know, a full Ironman at altitude. And that is leaner is definitely not always better, especially in long course triathlon. And I yeah. learned that, but honestly, my cycle was never affected at all. So, okay. um, I have not, I have not had issues with that, but I know women, a lot of women who have personally. Yeah. Yeah. So. That, that's the only reason I ask Cause I've heard that, you know, from, but these are like more petite type women too. Not that you're not petite, but they're maybe like shorter right. and they're getting like under a hundred pounds or right at a hundred pounds. So I've seen like yeah. that probably really affects it. But I mean, I think that being healthy and allowing your body to, you know, cycle naturally is probably the best way to do it. And that's what even Anna says is, you know, if you can, you're within the means to have a regular cycle and avoid um, contraceptives. Like it's yep. usually better on your body in the long term to do yeah. that. So that was her advice as well. Yeah, for um, sure. And I think that um, I, I will say as well as an athlete, um, when I was younger, being on like the the birth control pill, or you know, there's a lot of different types. I never really responded very well to that. 
so that that's not the route I'm ever going again. And if someone, if someone, if that's her choice, like, obviously I'm not going to say no one should, but for me personally, I never responded physically or mentally well to that at all. Um, so I definitely, yeah, that's, that's not in my wheelhouse to be doing that. Okay. Well, any last bit of advice for any, um, female listeners that, you know, they could take in to their next race. If this, if, you know, you had Miami happen during right. your cycle. So anything that you could give like a couple words to, to advise? I would say track things, take notes, start noticing patterns. And once you start noticing those patterns, if you're in, let's call it a more vulnerable time or more low energy, just a bad hormone week. Um, and again, I'm not really sure what to call it. I would just say, just really extra take care of yourself. And I think okay. that you will figure out the things, there's lots of info out there. And again, Anna, like I'm sure has a ton, like there, there's lots of info out there on how you extra need to take care of yourself, but just be cognizant of it and be conscious of it. And um, it, you know, if you do those things, it is definitely better because, you know, I just have my own empirical evidence for myself that if you take care of yourself, it is better. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, don't make yourself feel bad. Don't feel like you have to push it or you're missing out on fitness. Like odds are right. just by allowing your body to recover, you're still going to absorb the fitness that you had going into it. And you can come out a little sharper on the race day. Totally. And I know you said one piece of, of advice, but another thing I would say is, again, because during that time, you might be a little immunocompromised, just from what I've read, I'm, I'm not an expert, but um, just if you start feeling at all run down, and again, I use the word run down because not necessarily sick, but just run down as if like, if you were to get sick, it's kind of the beginning of that. Like just a bit flat. Put, yeah, just put a stop to it for 48 hours. Just put a stop to it, eat, drink, don't, you know what I mean? And, and I found that that you know, it'll turn around because you're not, you know, because it's, it's not actually getting sick, at least for me, usually. Um, it's just kind of your immune system and body being like, eh, we're kind of on the verge. So I just put a 48 hour stop on it and don't do anything. For me, that's what works. Well, perfect. I mean, we're going to have more of these discussions moving forward, especially once you and our other real triathlon squad ladies take over. We love hearing about all this great stuff because for us, you know, the male athletes, we are, we need to be aware of this, especially for coaches, especially for husbands yeah. with athletes, um, as, as wives. So, um, great info, Leslie, and thanks for being so candid and open about this topic. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be well received. Yeah, for sure. Anytime I, like I said, I've kind of had a lot of experience with it by now, so <laughs> I can share. Okay. <laughs> okay, Leslie. Well, we'll have you on again real soon. So until then, peace out. All right. Peace out. Thank you. Parachute, dancing on a couch like I'm Tommy Cruise on a one-man mission trying to see it through.